some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 3, The Invitation. We all know the rules for dealing with vampires. You can probably name half a dozen of them without trying too hard. Vampires hate garlic and holy symbols. They can be drowned in running water. They can't be seen in a mirror and they will die if exposed to the sun. These rules originate with Eastern European folk tales that are the ancestors of the tropes that most of us have become familiar with through movies, television, and novels. But the specific rule that concerns us in this episode may be the most important rule of all. According to tradition, a vampire cannot enter a home unless it is invited. I'm not sure as to the exact origin of this particular prohibition, but it was probably invented as a way of providing people with some sense of comfort in the sanctity of their homes at a time when they actually feared they might be attacked by a vampire. Or perhaps it was a form of supernatural victim shaming, suggesting that if someone was attacked by a vampire, then they must have brought it upon themselves. Still, one would think that this would be an easy rule to follow. Even in a more primitive time, with so much still unknown, one thing that they had figured out was that you should never, under any circumstances, invite a monster into your house. You may be wondering why we should concern ourselves with silly superstitions conjured up to ward off something that in these more enlightened days we no longer believe in. Vampires have been reduced to figments of our imagination. But it may be that therein lies the danger. That in their diminution, have we forgotten the valuable lessons those superstitions were intended to teach? That even if vampires do not really exist, there are other monsters waiting outside our door, waiting for an invitation to come in. And so the question is asked, in this day and age, have we dismissed the lessons of the past? Would we willingly invite a monster into our home? In many cases, the answer is yes. Somewhere out there in the night, right now, there is a group of young people gathering around a table. Before them is a game pulled out of a closet from where it was stacked between Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit. The board is decorated with letters, numbers, and the words yes, no, hello, and goodbye, as well as various vaguely arcane-looking symbols. The participants rest their fingers on a plastic triangular wedge called a planchette. The group is nervous, but also excited. Some of them may be a little frightened. They begin to ask questions, but the planchette remains still. Five minutes pass, and there is no response. Five more minutes, and still nothing. 
the planchette hasn't moved. They begin to grow bored and frustrated, and maybe even relieved. When suddenly the planchette slides across the board to a letter, and then to another letter, a word is formed, and then another word. Questions are asked and answered, and finally, a conversation begins. But with whom or what are they communicating? Are they talking to a ghost or something else? They may believe that they are talking to a deceased friend or a relative. It may be a complete stranger. At first, it's innocent enough, even fun. But as the conversation progresses, something goes wrong. Maybe they challenge or insult the spirit. Maybe it shows an uncomfortable interest in a particular person. And suddenly, it's not fun anymore. The spirit seems angry. It curses and threatens them. The room starts to get cold. Objects sitting on the table begin to vibrate. Someone feels something touch their arm. They feel a sharp pain and see that they've been scratched. The group hastily puts the board back in the closet. They may even throw it away, but it's too late. An invitation has been proffered and accepted. The vampire is in the house, and now there is hell to pay. There are hundreds of Ouija board horror stories to be found on the internet. They can be read on website after website under headlines promising that they are true accounts. But they often sound like the story that you just heard and that they are vague and read like fiction. But this is not to suggest that all of them are untrue. Beneath all of the smoke that is essentially paranormal fan fiction burns an actual history of madness and violence all of which is connected to the use of the Ouija board. But let's begin on a quieter note. Despite all of the horror stories, the origin of the most famous brand of what were once known as talking boards was certainly ordinary enough. In the beginning, it was nothing more than an attempt to capitalize on a popular trend. Talking boards or spirit boards have been around for close to a thousand years. They gained popularity in the 19th century with the rise of the spiritualist movement. Spiritualists believed that it was possible to communicate with the spirits of the dead and that they possessed knowledge that was hidden from the living, knowledge that they would share with those willing to talk with them. They also believed that God would sometimes use these spirits to communicate with the living. The founders of the movement were mostly women, like the Fox sisters, Cora Scott, and Aixa Sprague who claimed to be able to contact spirits and communicate with them through the knocking sounds heard on the walls of the parlors where they would hold their gatherings. Others offered a more advanced form of communication. Some psychics and mediums of the time demonstrated what was known as automatic writing, the ability to go into a trance-like state and act as a living conduit through which the dead could communicate with the living. The spirits would answer questions through the psychic who would write the responses on pieces of paper. Talking boards took spirit communication out of those closed parlors and opened it up to the masses by facilitating communication with the spirit world that didn't involve the services of a medium. At the cost of $1.50, anyone could communicate with the spirit world. Because of spiritualism's compatibility with Christianity and because of their accessibility, talking boards soon became a phenomenon. 
And like most phenomena, there was someone ready to make money off of it. A patent was issued on February 10th, 1891 for a particular style of talking board to the Kennard Novelty Company of Baltimore, Maryland. The story goes that the executives of the company, led by medium Helen Peters, who was a sister-in-law of one of the investors, allowed the board to name itself. While using the board, it spelled out the word Ouija, which was later suggested to be an ancient Egyptian word meaning good luck. The product was so successful that in 1892, the company changed its name to the Ouija Novelty Company, and sales continued to climb. In 1944, one New York department store sold 50,000 Ouija boards in five months. In 1966, the business was acquired by Parker Brothers. They sold a million and a half Ouija boards in the first year that they owned the patent. For most people, it was a game and nothing to be taken too seriously. But others found a deeper meaning in their use of the board. For two women, the Ouija board allegedly became a way to communicate with deceased writers and to allow them to produce new works from beyond the grave. In July 1912, Pearl Lenore Curran and her friend Emily Grant Hutchings used a Ouija board while visiting a friend. This seemingly innocuous event had a profound effect on both women. Further use of the board led them both to claim to be in contact with the spirits of deceased writers. Both women cast themselves in the role of paranormal secretaries, who through the board were able to dictate new works of literature. Curran came into contact with someone named Patience Worth, and together the two of them wrote several novels, short stories, and poems. Hutchings claimed to have contacted the spirit of Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, with whom she had corresponded when he was alive. Through her, he dictated the novel Jap Heron, which was set to be published until a lawsuit from the Clemens family forced her to abandon the project. In its early years, the Ouija board was not considered to be particularly sinister. It was just a game for most people, and perhaps a means of artistic expression for others but it was not seen as evil or dangerous. However, over time, frightening stories began to surface. In 1920, the town of El Cerrito in Northern California was driven mad by the use of the Ouija board. It started when a 15-year-old girl was found wandering around the town naked. She had been using the board and claimed that removing her clothes helped her to better communicate with the spirits. Then a policeman stripped naked and ran into a bank. The madness was contagious. By the time order was restored, seven people were arrested and four women were committed to an insane asylum. The local council brought in mental health professionals to examine everyone in the town and passed an ordinance banning the use of the Ouija board. There were also instances of people using the belief of others in the powers of the Ouija board to their advantage. On March 6, 1930, Clotilda Marchand, wife of sculptor Henry Marchand, opened the door of their bungalow in Buffalo, New York, to find Nancy Bowen standing on her doorstep holding a hammer. The woman screamed witch and struck Miss Marchand repeatedly in the head. She then strangled her until she was unconscious. Bowen then stuffed a chloroform-soaked rag down her throat, causing her to asphyxiate. It was discovered that Bowen had participated in a Ouija board session with her friend Lillian Jemerson, in which the spirits told Bowen that Clotilda Marchand was a witch and had murdered Bowen's husband. Ultimately, Jimerson confessed to using the board to trick Bowen into committing the murder, 
so that she could be with Henry Marchand, for whom she had served as a model. On November 8, 1933, 15-year-old Maddie Turley of Prescott, Arizona, got up from the kitchen table where she was sitting with her mother. She picked up a shotgun and walked out into the yard where her father was working. She approached, raised the shotgun to her shoulder, and shot him in the back. When questioned by police, at first, she claimed that it had been an accident, but later confessed that she and her mother had been playing with the Ouija board and that the spirits had told her to kill Daddy. It was quickly realized that her mother had used the board to manipulate her daughter into committing the murder. Sometimes no manipulation was necessary. A believer in the spirits that communicated through the board could do horrible things without any help. In 1921, the New York Times reported that a Chicago woman who had been sent to a psychiatric hospital tried to explain to the doctors examining her that she wasn't crazy. It was the Ouija spirits that had told her to leave her mother's dead body in the living room for 15 days before trying to bury her in the backyard. It might be tempting to try to console ourselves with the fact that all of these things happened a long time ago. That in the modern age of Starbucks, smartphones, and the internet, we are immune to the madness. But we would be fooling ourselves. Many modern users of the Ouija board talk of spirits predicting the death of a friend or loved one, only to see that prediction come true a short time later. In a house that was once at peace, they now experience sudden and unexplainable drops in temperature or foul smells, knocking and scratching sounds in the walls, and the sudden violent movement of furniture. But the most terrifying stories are those of possession. On February 11th, 2001, police discovered a naked and deranged woman hiding in the forest near Minko, Oklahoma. The 53-year-old grandmother, Carol Sue Elvaker, had no history of mental problems and there were no traces of drugs or alcohol in her system. Investigators soon learned that she had stabbed her son-in-law while he slept and then attempted to stab one of her granddaughters. Patricia Roach, Elvaker's daughter, wrestled the knife from her and then inexplicably, the murderous grandmother, her daughter, and two granddaughters got into a car and drove away from the house. Even more surprising, Elvaker was driving. She purposefully crashed the car, breaking both of her ankles in the process. Amazingly, she was able to get out and attempted to push one of her granddaughters into oncoming traffic before fleeing into the forest. She was deemed insane and remanded to a mental institution. In December 2007, police responded to a 911 hang-up call at a residence in Benton City, Washington. They found a mortally wounded mother named Lori Schlakelin and the body of her 13-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's throat had been slashed. Lori had been beaten with a dumbbell and stabbed 41 times. She died in the ambulance before it could reach the hospital. They soon arrested Lori's 15-year-old son, Donald, and his 16-year-old friend, Joshua Tucker. During questioning, the boys revealed that Joshua had slit Elizabeth's throat as she was talking on the phone. He then began stabbing her mother, when his knife broke, he took a dumbbell and bludgeoned her nearly to death. Donald Schlakelin attempted to help his friend hide the bodies before the two made their escape. The boys said that a few days earlier, they had been using a Ouija board and that over the course of a 45-minute conversation, Joshua had been possessed. 
They pled guilty, and Joshua was sentenced to 41 years in prison, while Donald received a sentence of only nine and a half years. In January of 2015, Margaret Carroll and her stepdaughter Katrina were communicating with the spirit on a Ouija board in their home. Their use of this board was particularly disturbing because a week earlier, her husband Paul had pled guilty to killing the family dog. He said that he had been using the Ouija board when an evil spirit possessed the dog. So he drowned it, dismembered the body, and stuffed it into a nearby drain, which then backed up. Workers sent to fix the drain found the remains, and Carol was arrested. Now his wife and daughter were using the same board, and the result was even more disturbing. It told them that they were going to die. The next day, they took prescription medication, set the house on fire, and waited to be burned alive. They were pulled out of the fire before the Ouija board's prophecy came true. Most people would try to talk with deceased friends or loved ones. Sometimes they sought out historical figures, and sometimes they just went fishing for any entity they might come across. The spirits with which these people communicated gave many names, one of which has become infamous. Many of the stories found on the internet focus on encounters with a specific entity. In 2012, two friends sat in a candlelit room facing each other across a Ouija board. One of the girls was asking about a recently deceased loved one when the communication ceased, and suddenly they seemed to be talking to something else. The planchette began to trace a figure eight on the board. They asked its name, and the planchette spelled O-Z, 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 O-Z. They thought that its name was Oz. They asked it to blow out a candle, and a candle went out. And then the spirit began to curse. They immediately put the board away. A few weeks later, they tried again, but the spirit was still present. They complained of experiencing a prolonged period of bad luck following the encounter, and after doing some research, realized that the name of the entity they had spoken to was actually Zozo. During a sleepover, two girls were using a Ouija board and made contact with Zozo. Afterwards, one of them complained of having a headache, so they put the board away and went to bed. During the night, the sister of one of the girls woke to find the girl who had experienced the headache standing by her bed. The girl was speaking in gibberish. She screamed red and ran from the room. The whole family was awoken and searched the house, but they couldn't find her. She reappeared 30 minutes later in her friend's room with no memory of what had happened. These two incidents are relatively mild examples of the many reported encounters with Zozo. It often pretends to be the spirit of a loved one and will usually be friendly at first. It may demonstrate knowledge of personal information in order to appear convincing. It may even disrupt communication with another spirit. At some point when talking with it, the planchette will start tracing a figure eight or an inverted Z on the board. Zozo is part urban legend and part actual legend. Encounters with it have been reported back as far as 1812. It is thought by some to be the demon Pazuzu, an evil spirit from Babylonian and Assyrian mythologies. The name Pazuzu has particular relevance for modern audiences where the use of Ouija boards are concerned. The Exorcist, written by William Peter Blady, was published in 1971. It is the story of a 13-year-old girl named Reagan McNeil, who uses a Ouija board to communicate with a spirit called Captain Howdy. Reagan begins to display disturbing behavior, 
and after psychiatric treatment fails to stop her deterioration, her mother turns to the Catholic Church. She meets with a local priest who is skeptical at first, but ultimately comes to believe that Reagan is possessed. A more experienced priest who has performed exorcisms in Africa is brought in to perform the ritual and realizes that he has faced this entity before. It is Pazuzu. The book became a bestseller, and on December 26, 1973, a cinematic adaptation was released by Warner Brothers and also became a huge success. The Exorcist did for Ouija boards what Jaws did for sharks. It taught us to fear them again. What makes The Exorcist particularly compelling is that it was inspired by a true story. In 1969, when Blady began writing the novel, he was inspired by a case he had first learned of from a newspaper article he had read while a student at Georgetown University 20 years earlier. In 1949, reports began to surface in newspapers of an exorcism performed by Jesuit priests. The source of the reports was Pastor Luther Miles Shutter. The boy at the center of the case was a resident of Cottage City, Maryland. To protect his identity, he was given the alias Roland Doe. The boy had been very close to his Aunt Harriet, a spiritualist, who introduced him to the use of the Ouija board. It was thought that after her death, he attempted to contact her using the board, but instead found something else. The family soon began to hear strange noises in the house and witnessed furniture and other objects moving by themselves. The parents took their son to Pastor Shutter in the hopes that he could help them. The pastor arranged for the boy to spend the night in his home where he witnessed similar phenomena. The two slept in twin beds in the same room. The pastor said that during the night he began to hear clawing sounds on the walls. The bed began to vibrate. A heavy armchair toppled on its side. He suggested they contact a Catholic priest. Roland underwent a series of exorcisms, the first of which was conducted at Georgetown University Hospital and was dramatically unsuccessful. It ended when Roland, restrained to a bed, slipped loose and used a bedspring to cut the priest. The second exorcism was conducted at St. Louis University, where the priests involved observed the bed shaking and objects flying around the room. Roland, speaking in a guttural voice, screamed and cursed and spoke in Latin. They observed words such as hate and evil form on the surface of his skin. He again attacked one of the priests who suffered a broken nose. The ritual was harrowing, but this time the exorcism was successful. Scientists tell us there is nothing to fear from the Ouija board. Or perhaps it is better to say that we have nothing to fear from otherworldly spirits. According to the scientists who have studied the Ouija board phenomenon, the identity of the person that you are talking to may surprise you. In July of 2012, Helene Gauchu spoke at the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness conference in Brighton, United Kingdom, about a study she conducted at the University of British Columbia. The results demonstrated that the responses generated through the use of the Ouija board came not from the spirit world, but from the people whose fingers moved the planchette around the board. It is caused by what is known as the ideometer effect, which occurs when the subconscious generates minute muscle movements of which the conscious mind is unaware. The study found that the effect was actually enhanced when more than one person was touching the planchette, as it made it easier for the unconscious mind to trigger the effect. Each subject was blindfolded and told that they were one of two people touching the planchette. 
During the course of the session, the subject swore that it was the other person that was moving the planchette. They were completely unaware that they were doing it themselves. Usually, science has a way of comforting us when it comes to the supernatural, of reassuring us that it was all a figment of our imagination, that we have nothing to fear. But if that is true, then the implications of the Ouija board are even more disturbing, because it means that the madness and capacity for violence are not thrust upon us by an outside force, but are already a part of us before our fingers ever touch the planchette. And that is the ultimate twist to this story. The vampire is not outside waiting for permission to come in. It is inside of us, waiting for an invitation to come out. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded by Mike Shear at Charleston Sound Studios. It was produced by Podcast Motor. If you enjoyed this episode, please support this podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer. Ratings and reviews will make it easier for listeners to find us. And remember to hit the subscribe button. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at pleasingterrors.com. Thank you for listening. I'll speak with you again in two weeks.